0: Uh, thank you so much worship team. I just felt the little energy drain go out as the energy left the sanctuary. Did you feel that? That was great. That's life, right? A great moment of worship time and life happening after that. This is good, good stuff. Hey, welcome to, uh, to GPC. If you've not been here before, really glad to have you. You have caught us in um, a teaching series that we we're calling To Die For. We are now uh, getting near the very end of this 10-part series. We're on part 9 of 10. And so if you're a good mathematician, you know next Sunday we're at the end. Uh, And it's been a good series for me to teach through. I hope that there have been points along the way that have been helpful for you as you've interacted with uh, what has gone on. If this is your first time hearing this series, I hope this morning can be a helpful touch point for you. And I will tell you that this morning I hope that this message uh, from the book of Hebrews ultimately will actually get down deeper into your heart this morning than maybe you came expecting to deal with. I'm just going to put that out there. I hope that the Word of God and the Spirit of God does more work in us this morning than we came expecting to have happen, perhaps, as we walked in the door. So I just want to put that out there, that the message of this morning is going to dig down, if we'll let it and kind of speak to a part of our heart and soul that we often just don't get down to because it takes work to get there. Okay? So this series, the reason we call it To Die For, if you've not been here at all, is because we think that the Christian faith, we need to remind ourselves, if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't just mean coming to church on Sunday morning or going through routines of whatever you might think Christianity is, but that people for generations have died for and bled for and been persecuted for the faith that we so often coolly take for granted and that we come on the shoulders of and the Christian faith has been forged from the difficult, difficult seasons of of life that Christians have gone through and survived and chosen to believe when others have chosen to walk away, and it's those who have chosen to believe who have kind of handed this thing off to us and said, here you go. This is the faith. And So this faith is to die for, not just Sunday altering, but life altering, as I've said. And so we've talked in this uh, book of Hebrews so far about Jesus being fully God and fully man and the implications of that. We've talked about what faith is, that it centers around Jesus Christ, Uh, primarily not about I don't come to Christ because of a church or because of a leader or because of anything. I come to, to Christ because of... Christ alone. And now, last week and this week, we're dealing with another topic. And last week, we asked this question um, if I want to follow this Jesus with this kind of faith, how do I do it? How does one draw near to God? How do I do that? How do I draw near? And one of the dangers that we tried to talk about last week is this danger of something we call moralism, where moralism is actually seeking to reduce my experience with God to a set of essentially Christian values or ethics or moral behaviors. The point I tried to make last week is simply this, that people have always had a tendency to correlate nearness to God with keeping a moral code of conduct. This has been a historical pattern that we can track throughout all of time that we can see, is that there is this natural default behavior in us to say, the more closely I follow the rules, the moral code of conduct, the closer I will be to God. It just seems right, and that's what we do. And then last week we looked in Hebrews chapter 7, the author is writing the old regulation was weak and useless. And if you were here last week, this was kind of fun, because we actually booed in church, and we booed heartily the law. We booed the regulations, and we realized there's something more than that. And so the issue on the table this morning is a second Piece of this moralism conversation, taking it a little bit further than where we took it last week, and so to kind of get our mind around where I want to go with this uh, piece of moralism again this week, is um, I'd like to take you to a moment, and I'm I'm sure some of you have experienced this. Have any of you ever been um, been walking through a city street, uh, or you know maybe down a, a hallway in your classroom and stepped on freshly chewed gum? Well, I had a couple of emotional responses to that right away. Can we get a couple? We have anybody? We've got a couple of gum steppers? Yeah, okay. So let's, let's just process that for a moment, okay? And I'm, the reason I'm thinking about this is in about two weeks I'm going to be in Chicago uh, as uh, Jen and I uh, and family, or we're going to be doing a, a 10-week sabbatical this summer, uh, not all in Chicago, but we're starting our trip out west by going to Chicago. And I'm thinking of walking down the streets of Chicago, and for whatever reason in my mind all the time is when you're on a city street, just watch where you're walking and don't step on the gum, probably because I've stepped on it too often. So we step on the gum, right? We step on the gum, and then what happens? Like, oh... If you notice it, first of all, that's good. If you don't, it's worse because then it gets into your car and it gets wherever. But how do you get gum off the bottom of your shoe? Freshly chewed gum and someone just spit out or fell out of their mouth because they were gawking at whatever. We have gum. You have gum on the bottom of your shoe. We have a problem, don't we? Let's just talk about how we get it off. Go down on the sidewalk, right, and kind of scrape the edge of the sidewalk. Anyone be a sidewalk scraper? Ever try that? No? I got no... Um, Some, if you're out uh, where you actually have access to nature, you might take a leaf if that's all you got around you. I mean, kind of take a leaf and try to get that baby off. That doesn't really work very well either. Um, You might take your shoes off and just give up and maybe wash them when you get home. Uh, If you are thinking you might go to the bathroom, get some toilet paper, and put that on the shoe, that doesn't work very well either, because now you have toilet paper and gum on your shoe, right? And and all along the way, you end up collecting um, with this gum on the bottom of your shoe, all kinds of things, you know, pieces of dirt, specks of whatever, all along the way that actually get attracted to and just stuck on the bottom of your shoe. And it's very difficult, isn't it? It's very difficult to actually get The gum off your shoe, right? And maybe this is why they created Gooby Gone. Anyone ever use Gooby Gone, that little thing? Yeah, it kind of eats away anything that it touches. And uh, maybe that's why they created that. But it's a difficult thing, isn't it, to get gum off the shoe? I don't really have a great answer. Some people use a stick to pull that off. I don't know what to use. And so here's the metaphor that I'd like to carry with us through this message. Life, okay? From little on up, if you're a small person walking through life and you're going through elementary school and gradually coming up into middle school and you have a growing self-awareness of who you are, as you go through life, there are things that you and I step into that get stuck to us because of who we are. Like We step into the middle of an argument with other people and try to resolve it and actually make it worse. Like We step into a moment of competitiveness and our anger gets the best of us and we yell and scream. We step into a moment of peer pressure and our insecurities show up and we kind of make a fool of ourselves. We step into moments where habits, tendencies, default behaviors that are deep within our soul are hard to pull out. And as we have a growing self-awareness, there's something in each of us when we put our head down on the pillow at night and when it's just us, there's something in all of us that we might say, man, if I could change this thing about me, this is what it would be. If I could pull this proverbial gum off of my soul, I would love to do it. But what is stuck to my heart is I give in to gossip regularly. Like, I give in to anxiety regularly. I'm paralyzed by it. I am paralyzed by my insecurity and the fact that I think life is actually about me. Like, I am stuck in not handling conflict well, and I get angry with people, and I don't know what to do about that, but that's a part of me. If I could just change this, I could, but I don't know how, to get the gum off the bottom of my shoe. I don't know how to get the thing about me or the things about me that I wish were different. I don't know how to pull that off of my soul. And I keep coming around to the same problems over and over and over again. I keep finding myself looking at things I shouldn't look at. I keep finding myself being critical of people that I shouldn't be critical of. I keep finding myself being very unforgiving, and I can't get around that. That I keep having this, and I wish that I could pull it off of my soul, but I can't. Some of you have come to church for this very reason. Because there's something in you that you want to get cleaned and get rid of, And you hope a connection with God will do that. And you want to find a way to get rid of that part of you that only you live with, really. That there's something in each of us that we try to hide from one another that at the end of the day, with a pillow, just me and my thoughts, no one else, maybe not even my spouse, knows the depth of my struggle, but I do. How can I get that gum off of my soul? Get it. Away. And I hope maybe the church can do that. The author of the book of Hebrews deals with this issue and walks us through how people have historically tried to do this and offers a solution, a way, to think about how I come to God and how in the depths of my own soul and spirit, when I circle around to the things that regularly trip me up, that I wish regularly I could... If only I could, but I can't figure out how to. He gives us some tremendous and powerful insight that I'm telling you. If you can allow this, your heart and and soul for a minute to be open to the truth of the Scriptures, I think it can be an absolute life changer for you and how you see both you and the grace of God this morning. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews and we're going to be in chapters 9 and 10. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you, uh, and that Bible is our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own one. But Hebrews chapter 9, the book of Hebrews is in what we call the New Testament, the right third of your Bible, and we're going to uh, drop it in to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And so when you think about um, how I kind of cleanse myself or clean myself, if you will, from this stuff and how I kind of try to get on top of the things that I wish were different. If you think about it for a minute, one of the first things that we all will do is we're going to want to set up some kind of discipline, some kind of order, some kind of intentionality to our lives. Say, well, I fell into that. Oh, I thought that. I did this. Shouldn't have. I'm going to be disciplined about it and I'm never going to let that happen again. So in order to do that, I'm going to join an accountability group. I'm going to pray three times a day. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to burn my CDs or whatever. Okay, those those are CDs. are kind of like records now, right? I'm going to get rid of this. I'm going to do this. But I'm going to set up some regulations so that I won't walk into the thing again. And then the more consistent I am with the regulations, then the more likely I am to get the gum off my soul and to not fall into who I really am again. And here is where the author meets us at our point of default behavior, and he meets us right here in verse 9 and verse 1. He said, now the first covenant had regulations. In other words, order for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary. In other words, the first covenant, the first way to relate to God was through order, was through discipline, was through sacrificing correctly, worshiping correctly, keeping the laws correctly. That was the default behavior. And then he explains it, and this is very interesting to read through, verse 2, because he just lays out what this was like in worship. And this is how it was like. He said a tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. So there actually is a physical holy place. And verse 3, behind that curtain, kind of in the back room, backstage if you will, behind that second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place. And in that room, verse 4, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant, this ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And then above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Just pause it there for a second. He's laying it out again very practically and physically. Like this is what worship was like. Remember? Remember, people? I mean, not you, but he's kind of saying to the people in the book of Hebrews, remember that? Because this is what it was like. Let me just lay it out for you. Very ordered and disciplined. And then verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, that means the most holy place, and that only once a year. And then he could never go in there, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Pause it there for a second. So the priest would come in. The idea is that we don't fully have access yet to the most holy place, the full presence of God. And now here is where he his verdict on this order, the regulations that we set up to try to relate to God. Verse 9. This is an illustration, he writes, for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not Able to clear the, what's the next word? Conscience. We're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. That is very profound. The gifts, the sacrifices were not able to actually do what they were supposed to do. The depth of the soul at the conscience level was not changed, was not cleaned or cleared by the regulations. It only made you feel better for a little bit, and then you would trip over the same problem again, and then you would sacrifice again. Does this sound familiar? And then you trip over it, and you feel a little bit better And then you trip over it again and you feel a little bit better. But at the end of the day, the conscience, the deep part of you that has that gum stuck to your soul that you wish you could pull off, but by pulling on it, it sticks even more to you, was never cleared. Verse 10, they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. These are external regulations. They don't clear the conscience. This is such a big deal for the author that he goes on to say in verses 11 on down to 14, he says this, verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So now he's taking the old tabernacle and saying Christ came and went through a new tabernacle. And he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And then verse 14 again, a game changer. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our, and what's that next word again? Consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. In two times, in just a few verses, the author is saying, your conscience needs to be cleaned. Your conscience needs to be cleaned. You've got gum on your soul, and you can't get it off. And the external regulations, the stick that you've been poking at to change who you really are, the toilet paper maybe that you grab from the bathroom to try to wipe it off, the scraping on the sidewalk that you've tried over time to change who you are, it doesn't actually take care of the problem. The external regulations don't cleanse your conscience. The conscience is this deep part of us that is, in a way, the true us. Some cultures talk about it as being the inner voice or the way of right and wrong. But at the end of the day, the way to understand this conscience is, it really is your true self, like your true self, that, that maybe even your spouse doesn't really know, but come on, you know, you know it. And You know there are times when you just wish, man, I can't get rid of this thing that keeps cycling around in my life, this critical spirit. Where does this come from? I don't even want this. This impatience, where does this come from? This lack of trust and confidence in God, where does this come from? My insecurities in thinking that my looks are the most important thing, or my intellect is the most important thing, where does this come from? Because I'm stumbling on myself as I go. God, we got stuff. How do we get rid of that? Why does it even matter, number one? Why does it even matter that our consciences are cleaned? And this to me is so important in this conversation. Why does it even matter that your conscience is cleaned? To think about it another way, let's ask the question in reverse. What if uh, your conscience is never cleaned? What if my conscience is never cleaned? What happens to me? Let me put it this way, and this is what I believe firmly. I'm going to try to explain it in a minute. That is this. If my conscience can't be cleaned, I can never really live. If my conscience can't be cleaned, I can never really live. And there's a difference between living and existing, right? Like, you know people who are religious stick in the muds. Right? They come to mind immediately. These are people who have grown up in a religious environment, an externally based follow-the-rules environment, who rarely smile or enjoy life or enjoy the adventure that it brings. Because life has been full of keeping the external regulations. Trying to, in that pursuit, prove in a way to God, I'm faithful. Like I'm, I'm good. We're close. I've been trying to get that gum off my shoe forever, and I just keep coming. And that's what I do. And it's been so much fun. And if my conscience can't be cleaned, you will never really live. You will will live, you will exist, you will exist. But you will exist in a passionless mediocrity in which the things of God will not thrill you because it will be another burden to add on to your life. The, The life that comes, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I've come to clean your conscience. I've come to get that gum, if you will, off your shoe. Right? I've come to take the thing from you that you wish you could come around to and kind of get rid of it at the end of the day. And you know, just know you can't. You've been trying. You've been trying. You've been trying. I've been come for that. See, we know how we try to deal with it, right? Like we try to deal with this stuff by by working it off. We uh, we try to obedience it away. Some of us try to maybe drink it away. Right? Some of us try to exercise it away. Some of us try to um, study it away. Some of us try to just ignore it away. Some of us vacation it away, whatever. right? Like We do all kinds of things to wish at the end of the day that I can be at peace with my conscience. That I can really live because I really want that. Here the author of Hebrews is saying, only through Jesus Christ can our conscience be cleared. It's amazing. It's amazing what Jesus did to accomplish this and what the author says. Check out what he does next. It's profound. Verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ didn't enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, like scraping the shoe on the sidewalk over and over and over and over and over over again, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But look at the picture of what he says he does next in the next sentence. But now, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, if you are an objective, kind of fact-based person, and you're not really uh, emotionally engaged a, a ton. Just, we're going to have to deal with the facts of this verse. Okay, We're going to have to deal with the facts of this, this verse. Check out the tenses that are going on here. Okay? Let me do a little bit of grammar work with you. But now, he has appeared, past, present, or future tense. Past, present, or future. He has appeared. Past tense. right? He has appeared. Past tense. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Is that a past or future orientation? Future. right? You can say that with confidence. Future. We have a, a past act placed in the future context to do away with sin, present tense, by the sacrifice of himself. This is an amazing concept. That Jesus, somewhere along the line, in the past, has gone to the future and done something that impacts us in the present. So when you're wrestling with, with sin, right, when you're tripping on that again, and you're trying to cleanse the conscience. We've got to come back, just even to the facts of this verse, that this act of Jesus sacrificing himself for our sin, actually, you need to picture this reality. He fast-forwards through time, to the end of time, to the end of the ages that has yet to happen in our chronological experience, in our time-space universe yet, where we exist. He has already been to a place where we have not been and has, past tense, paid for something that we are now experiencing in full later on. that confusing? Welcome to what Christ has done. And so as we continue in this day and age, in this time-space continuum, to try to scrape this thing off our shoe, he's like, Hello, I've been there, okay? Like, I have gone into the future and paid for the very thing that you're trying to scrape off of your soul. It's almost like this image, if I can switch metaphors for a minute, of making a payment on a student loan payment or a car payment or a mortgage, that every month that debt comes due, and I feel a little bit better that I made the payment, made the payment, made the payment, Uh, made payment, made the payment, made the payment, made the payment. But Jesus is like, I paid it off. Just give me the thing. I've gone ahead and I've paid it off for you. Like the debt that you feel, I've I paid it off. Why, why are you continuing to pay that? Why do you even try? Because next month you're going to come back and try to pay it again. And then what will happen? You'll feel a little bit better because you made the payment. But what's going to happen next month? is going to come again. Listen, I've made the payment. <laughs> it's paid off. In full, I've gone to the end of the age and paid this thing off and so i'm going to have to wrestle with the reality of am i going to believe this or not am i going to trust this or not or am i going to prefer am i going to prefer a religion in which i get to feel a little bit better about what i do every month or am i going to prefer a relationship where i step back and trust and say christ has paid this all Because if I step into this month by month, here's what happens in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. What happens is this thing keeps coming over and over and over again. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. It can never cleanse our consciences if it could would they not have stopped being offered yes for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would be no longer uh, excuse me would no longer have felt guilty for their sins but those sacrifices are check that out an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins in other words every time your bill comes due the payment comes due it actually reminds you that you're a sinner <laughs> like every time that we make a sacrifice for our sin, it actually serves to remind us you're going to have to do this again. Because that sacrifice is not going to be good enough. That obedience is not going to last. Your resolve is not going to last. Your plan is not going to hold. You're going to come circling back around to that again. And every time you do it, it's almost like in the back of your mind, you know I'm going to circle back around to this again. What do I do? Verse 11 of chapter 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because, and this is the clincher here, because... By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What do I want for you this morning? What I want for you When you are in the throes of wrestling with the stuff about you that you wish maybe weren't there. When you're looking at a part of your heart and soul that maybe today you're not looking at. It may be a month, it may be a year, I don't know. But there will come a time, if it's not right now, where you will look at yourself and say, man, God, I wish this part would change. Here's what I want you to know. And I've said it in various terms before, but I want you to remember this, number one, that the gospel plus anything is always minus the gospel. We've talked about that before here at GPC. That the gospel message plus my regulations on top, it actually is minus the gospel. The gospel plus my commitment is always going to be minus the gospel. The gospel plus my resolve is always going to be minus the gospel. The gospel plus... My obedience and my adherence and my work is always going to be minus the gospel. The gospel plus anything is always going to be minus the gospel. And here's what I want you to do, because here's what I do and what I need to do. In the moments where you wish that you could figure out a way to get that gum off the shoe, that that sin, right, that um, the failure, the habit, the things that kind of just keep coming around to you again, that maybe, again, only you know about. I would love for you in that moment to step into, number one, a prayer to God, asking his grace again to transform you. But in that prayer, reminding both yourself and those around you of what the gospel really is. And I would love for you to remember this simple concept about the gospel, that the gospel is about three things. Sin, substitution, and faith. That at the end of the day, I have sinned. I've fallen short of God's perfect standards. Good grief, I fall short of my own standards, let alone God's standards. So, I've sinned. I need to own that. And then somewhere I need to get a substitute to pay for the penalty of my sin. And then I'm going to have a choice to make. Am I going to substitute my obedience for, my work for, my memorization for, my attendance for, my resolve for, or am I in that moment going to say, wait a minute, I think there's something in the book of Hebrews that says that Jesus went to the end of the ages and paid my debt. That in fact, the substitution has already been made. And so in this moment, holy cow, in this moment, my debt is paid. And the gospel overwhelms my heart and soul. And the gospel cleanses my conscience and gives me life and motivation and joy. In the middle of what is sin and ugliness and brokenness and fallenness, the substitution of Jesus to cleanse me, an unworthy person. And then I've got to choose to believe and have faith. What I want for all of us, those listening online later, I I, I want for us to be gospel-centered people who come around to this and who are given life by the, the gospel, given life by the substitution of Jesus. Who recognize that we all have gum on our soul. I can't scrape it off no matter how I do it. The, Jesus has come once. Gone forward to the end of time. And paid the debt. It's done. And in the middle of all of my stuff, in the middle of all of your stuff, when you look at yourself in the mirror... When you, in the quietness of your own mind and heart, consider the things that just keep tripping you up. They're just a part of your soul. Know this. There's going to be nothing else that can clean your conscience. There'll be nothing else that will clean your conscience. The external regulations will not clean your conscience. They'll make you feel better for about a month. But the bill will keep coming due. Why continue to try to pay that bill? And if our consciences aren't clean, we cannot experience real life. Driven by, moved by, a love for the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. And I hope that for us, that we can be people of great faith, but people who fight moralism hard, and who fight this belief that the more moral I am, the closer I am to God. Nope, not true. The more I step into the gospel, the closer I am to God. Absolutely. May we be people like that. Next week we're going to wrap this series up. We're going to talk about a future that's unshakable. We're also going to talk about one small thing that can absolutely wreck that future. Looking forward to that next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray for us as we sit and listen and absorb and process what we've heard, help us to ask tough questions on this, to push into, to engage, to fight with if we need to, to disagree if we want to, but to engage and not to walk away unchanged, not to walk away unmoved, but to move into this and to see again for all of us the power of the gospel. And wherever we need to touch into that and speak into that and move into that, Father, give us the courage to do that. I pray that we would be people who are motivated by deeply a recognition of how significant the grace of the gospel is in our lives, that our movement toward you can come from this heart of worship, of of gratitude for the, the grace and the reach of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that that grace can be extended To all those in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our families who do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That we can be people who relate to you through this grace-centered lens, through this gospel-centered lens and accordingly live that way. Help us, Father, to find that life that is true life in that way. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your work in us. We thank you that you draw us and move us as our good God and Heavenly Father. Give us courage to do what we know we need to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name.